Bags and Boards number 75. Let's get into it. What a week. Weird feelings. Just going to start this podcast off by letting you know. We're talking about The Flash today. I went and saw it. Excited to talk about it. One of the most strange experiences I've had seeing a superhero movie because I wasn't too sure about it. But we're going to get into it. We got a packed show. We got an interview. We got the Golden Age Guru in the Casa with Fire Guy Ryan. I got a funny story. I got a funny story. But before I get to it, I want to hear just a quick reaction in the moment. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs midways for the flash go. Uh, yeah, more down. All right, so you're... I'm like here. You're there. Okay, so for those of you who are listening on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes, by the way, did you notice there was a couple comments in the comment section of the last podcast? I did. What did they say? Where's the podcast? I want to listen to it, but it's taken a while to come out. We used to post the audio versions of our podcast upwards of a week after release because I thought, hey, go watch it on YouTube. It'll get there eventually, thinking that that would help. And then years went by, and I never thought about it again. I saw those comments. We're changing it. Once the podcast gets released, we're putting it on the audio platform so you can listen to it on your drive to work, damn it. Ryan, go. Flash. Thumbs up. Thumbs down. Halfway. What are you feeling? I'm going to go somewhere near where Jeff did. About, about, I feel like I'm a gladiator right now. <laughs> I'm about to execute somebody. Uh, halfway. A little bit down, maybe. Maybe slightly higher than Jeff, but still halfway. I'm, I'm very meh on this movie. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I'm going to be coming at it closer to where Jeff is. I'm, I'm past the halfway going towards the down, but we'll get into that. I want to show you guys something. For those of you who watch our trending and hot 10 videos every week and stay to the end of the videos, you're going to know that this happened. But these guys haven't seen the outro. So this was my experience going to see The Flash. Um, let's just watch this because I recorded this in the moment and it accurately describes it better than what I can do rehashing it on the mic. Said, thanks for watching the video. I am off to watch this movie. I don't feel good about it, but I am excited to see Michael Keaton. We have other videos for you to check out. Enjoy them. Every Wednesday, we're on the best new app to buy and sell collectibles. That's whatnot. You're gonna wanna be there this Wednesday. I got some choice books. Wish me luck. Have a great weekend. Bye. My dumbass making this outro video walked into the wrong theater. I'm supposed to go into number 13, not number nine. And I walked into the ending of the movie. It's Ezra's fault. It's already starting out bad. <laughs> so that's real. Um, I, uh, this is going to be filled with spoilers, by the way. Just so you know, um, we have to. I want to talk about spoilers today. Yeah. So you've been warned. But the ending of the movie, which was like some of the best parts of the movie, were the cameos and the reveals. And I walk in. And I literally am hit with George Clooney, you know? And I'm watching, I'm like, wow, oh, George Clooney's in this? This is gonna be a great movie. Wait a minute, why has Ezra's tooth been knocked out? I don't really get that. Oh, and the credits? Oh, God, I'm in the wrong theater. Hot <laughs> damn. I mean, you saw a couple really good parts right from the start, um, and that was probably maybe a, a good way to go into it because <laughs> the parts I saw in the beginning of this movie and, like were not good. I didn't, right from the start, this movie to me lacked immediately. Did you see Jem Mint's review? He specifically went on the mic first to talk about the intro scene, mm -hmm. which is a rehash of the Quicksilver scene that's legendary in right. superhero filmmaking. You know, we got an Ezra Miller B-rated version at best. 100%. They called it the baby shower scene, and that's kind of funny. It's like straight out of the 90s. I did not like it. It's an old... 
old-fashioned superhero sequence that I think did not work in any way, and it definitely did not help that all those babies looked like that dancing baby from the 90s, like the terrible CGI all throughout this movie, by the way, but especially on those weird little rubber doll-looking baby kids. Uh, like did not care dolls. for that sequence at all. And the second, like, the second they went for the window, and the window broke, and you see the nurse in there and all, and all the babies flying out the window, I'm like, is this going to be a bad movie? I was, like, very uncomfortable at the beginning because I, I had high hopes. We heard lots of really, really, really good press and reviews for this movie going in, like, it's, it's amazing, it's the best superhero movie since Endgame, all these crazy... Super high reviews. Stephen King came out of nowhere and said this is like the best superhero movie he's ever seen, and he doesn't even like superhero movies. I love Stephen King, so I maybe put a little too much stock into his take. Not a fan, but especially not a fan of the intro. Now, I chatted last week with Jen Min about this movie and how I was not feeling the hype, mostly because of the Ezra effect, the controversies, the legal problems, you know? And going into it, I saw it for Michael Keaton, for Supergirl, for Val Zod, and hoping that there'd be some dope cameos, which there were. And I will give the movie props for that. But the big thing that I was worried about was them rehashing stuff that we've already seen on the screen before and them doing a poor job of it. CW Flash, I felt like the writing team attached to this DC movie had to have gone into the writing room and said, hey, did anyone see the multiple seasons where Barry had to go back in time to try to save his mother but failed to do it, and there's some reason why he's going to try to do it, and it's going to mess stuff up, so he's got to actually like, come to terms with it. Did you, any of you guys see, this mo uh, see the show? And what they probably said was, no, I haven't seen it, and I don't want to watch it because I don't want it to affect my writing. And then they did my worst fear. They did the CW narrative, but worse, with Ezra. Even looking at Marvel, though, if you look at uh, WandaVision and Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, it's very clear that the movie people and the TV people were not talking to each other. And there's there's some element of that here on display as well. Although I, I, I can kind of see their perspective. And you look at how many thousands or hundreds of thousands best case scenario watched the CW Flash versus how many millions of people are going to go see the Flash feature film. And I, I don't think you can worry too much about retreading same ground. But if you're going to do it, you should probably do it a little a little better. All the scenes, especially the flashbacks, the early scenes with him and his mom in their kitchen, did not work for me. The only, the only part of the, the movie I liked with Flash's mom was at the very end in the grocery store when he had to like, take the tomatoes out of her cart and like basically send her off to die. I thought that was very dark and uh, sad and fitting. I wanted to hear both of your guys' thoughts about the movie. But before I do that, we have some updates as of the day of this filming about how it's going. Because as you mentioned... There was a lot of people giving this crazy reviews. Best superhero movie of all time is what was coming out of some reviewers' mouths. And clearly, I'm thinking what happened was this was so expensive, over $300 million to make this movie. I also read that the last opportunity they had to stop this ship from sailing was post when Ezra, like, choked a fan on camera and the controversy started. You can look up that, look that up. It's, it's everywhere. Um, but there was a moment where they could have said, hold up, pull the plug. Maybe we can go in a different direction. They decided not to, and they dumped so much money into it that you have to assume that they were forced to go this route and were probably checking news every day. Uh, we hope Ezra didn't do anything else. We hope Ezra didn't do anything else. Well, now the movie's out. It's been a full weekend, a holiday weekend, by the way. This is what Geek League of America had to say. Breaking. Okay, here's some staggering numbers for the Flash post-mortem. The three-day weekend gross came in lower than the projections, finishing with a $55.1 million 
and a $64 million for the four-day holiday weekend. Worldwide, it stands at a catastrophic $139 million and is projected to finish under $350 million worldwide when it's all said and done, which is less than Black Adam, Eternals, Black Widow, and Shazam. Oof. Which are all better movies, in my opinion, Same. than that. I watched Shazam yesterday again because my partner hadn't seen it, and I saw it once, and I was half watching it because I was busy bagging and boarding. And I loved the film. It was dark. It was gritty. It was entertaining. I liked the villains. I liked the direction. I loved the family focus of you know of Shazam and him learning you know who he is, what kind of superhero he's going to be and lead, and to think like, oh, we're not getting any more of that. Well, Flash is going to transition us from what was at least decent to something new, James Gunn. That may be my biggest complaint about the whole damn movie. There was no real setup for the future, I don't think. They set up George Clooney popping out of that car at the end, and like now you're like, oh, he didn't really fix anything. He's in another alternate universe. Things are still screwed up. What now? We're not going to really get any payoff on any of that, I don't think. And there really just wasn't any setup at all for what comes next. It wasn't really like a reboot at all. No, there was a setup. It was the post-credit scene. Which I didn't stay for, by the way. That's my fault. What oh, was the post-credit sh- scene? Because I didn't stay for it either. What? Hey, spoilers. I went at 11 p.m., by the way. I was, I was like, passing out. It was 2 a.m. when the movie was over. The post credit scene, first off, was a little bit of a letdown. But what it was was a lead-in to the next death of a character in, in this DCEU universe. It was him, and it was Jason Momoa's Aquaman. Oh. It's leading us, this garbage trash, we're following this trash truck to the next stop, which is Aquaman. So that's the next dumpster fire that we get to go to. And when that's done, hopefully we can get a reset, all right, with James Gunn, all right, firing off some winning bullets because this was not good. The end was salvageable. I'll give you that. The cameos were fun, okay? The Flash was better without the Flash, okay? I enjoyed more scenes when the Flash was not in it than I did with the Flash in it. So you give me more Keaton, I'll take it. You give me uh, Supergirl, I'll take it. All right, you give me any of the cameos, gladly. Hell, you give me any of the supporting actors without the Flash involved, I'll take it. What were some of the reasons why you didn't like Flash? Because the first thing I thought of was that he's this like weird, quirky, almost quicksilver version of Barry Allen who was at least 90% like less intelligent than Barry Allen should be. Well, because, yeah, exactly. He's a bumbling idiot, okay? At some point, I don't care how much of a bumbling idiot you are as a person. When you have responsibilities of powers, at some point, if you're that much of an idiot, you would probably off yourself, okay? So they may, like, you would just do something stupid with your powers and end up killing yourself. Oh, accidentally. Accidentally. Okay. That's what I mean. I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying you're going to take your life. I'm just saying, right? So they have, He would have gotten past Dark side, for example. Yeah, he's experienced enough there should have been some more maturity and capability in this character. So in the beginning, from the start, I was like, oh, my God, this is what we're starting with? Okay, granted, there was a little bit of growth with this character at the end. A little bit of growth. Not enough because the beginning was really hard to watch. That whole uh, baby situation was just ridiculous. This building's literally collapsing. He's having a stupid conversation with Batman on the phone or Alfred, and it's just like, I was like, this is this is dumb. This is dumb. This is not a hero. This is not what I'm coming to watch. Okay, I had to watch other heroes and enjoy them because the main character hero wasn't a good hero. He was not. He was the 
probably the worst part of this film was the flash and the CGI. I think the movie was slow for me. I don't know about you guys, but I remember looking at my watch a couple times going, damn, we're like 40 minutes into this and he's just meeting Michael Keaton. And the main like plot of the story is to go and try to find Superman, which like spoiler, he ain't there. It's, it's Supergirl, which is cool. And then to be introduced to a villain we've already seen in this epic, like they could have picked any villain from the DCU that would have rather seen on screen poorly than Val Zod again. That's one of the things I did like about this movie was how many uh, callbacks and uh, it, it brought the whole thing full circle from the original Zack Snyder DC Man of Steel, which uh, I thought that was cool. I did, I did appreciate seeing Zod again, uh, as brief as it was. I thought the movie could have used an, an actual villain at some point. I didn't really appreciate how quick they set up and got through the whole dark flash, the dark Barry Allen stuff at the very end crammed into like one five-minute sequence in the Speed Force. I thought that could have used a little more development, but... I don't know. I, I, I didn't hate the uh, the scenes with two different Barry Allens talking to each other. I thought I thought there was some comedy in there, and I thought Ezra did an okay job playing off both versions of the character, even though the CGI looked absolutely dog crap when both of them were on the same screen together. You could tell that obviously there's some kind of weird computer-generated stuff happening here, which upset me a little bit because uh, on shows like Fargo, for example, when you had uh, two different Ewan McGregors, he was playing twin brothers in season three of that show on a TV budget, and it looked so much better than two different Ezra Millers side by side. And I think the CGI overall was the biggest drawback of the whole movie. I found it interesting that one of the things that you liked was the callbacks, but also one of the things that you didn't care for was about how it didn't really like complete the past narratives enough to feel like we're transitioning into something new. Outside of a post credit scene they could have filmed, afterwards to try to just tie it together so it's like you're kind of grasping a little bit for the things that was working but they didn't go all in enough what i would have much rather seen is not an origin story that we've already seen like on the cw in the last five years but have flash just go up against captain cold we don't need a whole backstory on captain cold you know it, it could be in the movie for a brief amount of time but just hit us with some stuff you know yeah it would have been cool to get one of Flash's other villains in here, or an actual villain at all, really, because all we got was a retread of Zod. I did like the origin story, though, how they, they didn't really show us how he got his powers until he had to bring this alternate Barry Allen into the lab and set him up in front of the chemicals and the lightning, and we got, like, a retread of how he got his powers without having to see the original Barry Allen actually going through that, so it was, like, a way for them to cheat and put an origin story into this movie without actually doing it. I thought that was a clever way to get around the the typical, here's how they got their powers, sequence in every superhero movie that we don't need to see anymore. Yeah, I mean, that was creative. I just, li like, you know, I agree with you on that. And I do agree with Tom, too, just seeing something different. Captain Cold would have been fine. Anybody else, like, villain-wise, I did feel cheated of seeing anything new. So we did get to see a lot of what we've seen in the past, whether it's from TV or whatever. So I think it would have been a great opportunity to somehow raise this character with... Um, adding something to the story instead of, like you said, regurgitating something that we've seen. Um, I do feel like we didn't get the whole getting the powers back, um, like in the traditional way where there's like a flashback. It was, you know, like a more of a creative way. But then he, the the original, the Flash, one of the, the main Flash, original Flash, whatever one you want to call, had to get his powers back too. 
And I thought that was a little bit of a hokey thing, too, being strapped to a chair, electricity. That actually directly happened in Flashpoint, the Jeff Johns book. There were there were a few things they took from Flashpoint, but that that is definitely something that they 100% pulled from there, where he it was on the roof of Arkham Asylum with Thomas Wayne Batman in the Flashpoint storyline. So it was a little different, but I did appreciate that they pulled something directly from that comic. Yeah, and again, for me, I don't care if it's in the comic book. We're watching a movie, and it doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. It has to work. So going from showing him getting his powers but losing him and then having to get him back, I felt like I'm watching Back to the Future here, and I'm, I'm watching, you know, freaking what's-his-face trying to put 1.2 gigawatts of electricity. With Eric Stoltz. With, you know, with <laughs> Eric Stoltz yeah. with Barry Allen here to get his powers back. Like, he's trying to hit the clock tower. Okay, so he can go back to the future. I mean, <laughs> just, I don't know, man. Just a lot fell flat. Um, I I felt like they overthought it at times, then they didn't under, and then they underthought it, and it's just, it was a mess. It was just a true mess because none of it felt like it congealed. Well, the uh, aspect of kind of retreading a origin where you lose powers and you get the powers back, I mean, isn't it fitting that I just brought up Shazam? That was a huge part of that movie is each of the individual family members lost their powers that they were just granted in the prior movie and had to get them back. You know, they had to go through this whole cycle. Like, DC's reusing narratives that mm-hmm. they've just done that didn't work. But because it didn't, like, build up in the way that I think we all were hoping for, I think that that's what caused the massive cameos at the end, which is really the climax of the movie, to not hit as like hard as I think the studio producers were really banking on. And we got Christopher Reeves on the screen. And when I saw it, I felt good, but I also didn't feel great. This wasn't a Tony Stark, you know, snapping the uh, Iron Man Infinity Gauntlet and and fixing everything moment for me. It was kind of like, uh, it kind of feels weird. And then you see like Golden Age Flash, which was clearly the CW Flash likeness, that guy wasn't in the movie. So, like, okay, well, there's – it's kind of cool. I like seeing Jay Garrick, you know? Oh, okay, Nicolas Cage Superman. That was dope as hell. I would watch that movie. That's where the movie lost me. I didn't, oh. I didn't like the cameos, and I know I'm in the minority on this. I'm glad he got to fulfill his dream of being Superman, and it's something he's wanted to do forever. But I think when you consider normal people who aren't us, who don't know that backstory, that he had the screen test and all those photos that we've all seen of Nick Cage in the Superman outfit – most people are going to look at that and go like, what the hell? I don't remember Superman with Nick Cage. What movie is that from? And they're just going to get confused, and it came out of nowhere. And I would much rather have seen Grant Gustin from the Flash TV show, the CW universe, or maybe even spent a little more time on the Adam West Batman, which was literally blink and you miss it right on the edge yeah. of the screen. That whole sequence felt like there was too much shoved in there, and it went way too quick, and it did not hit as hard as it should have. Yeah, I mean, look, like those same people who don't know also aren't going to know the Jay Garrick Flash when they see him sure. running, right? Those are the same people. So they're not going to catch all of that on everything. But I get what kind of what you're saying. I mean, I enjoyed the hell of it. I think enough people will enjoy it um, to, you know, appreciate it. But, yeah, I felt the Adam West thing I thought was a voiceover. I didn't even see him. Like, it was that's so how fast. quick it was. And that one should have deserved far more respect. I think clearly the studio was banking on that cameo sequence to be a – Spider-Man Far From Home level impact, which it clearly wasn't, and it's largely because of the kind of poor setup along the way to get there, and I I just don't think that it's as impactful now seeing it, because it's been done already, so if it hasn't been done on an elevated way, then it's going to be a miss, and clearly, they stuck through this, you know, 
this entire movie in production for years that was delayed since 2018 for a reason. I think they were thinking, oh, yo, we put Christopher Reeves on the screen. We win. We have the biggest movie ever. And then it would also make sense why we'd see so much uh, hype around the press as we approach it. You can't trust the studios, damn it. Hit the like. Slap the subscribe button. What do you think about The Flash? Let us know in the comment section below. You know, my favorite part was Nick Cage Superman. I'll say it. Supergirl for me. I yeah. did not expect to love her as much as I did, but I think she stole the show for me. Well, speaking of Superman, we saw a tremendous drop in a very expensive comic book. Now, we chatted about the Selling Superman documentary that's going to be coming out in the next year or two. Jeff being in the documentary. We even had uh, Rage Theo and One True Nerd King both on the show last week. Well, at one point, the price came up about the 7.0, what we think it would go for. And someone mentioned like, oh, it's like $2 million. And I think, Jeff, you were like, thumbs up. You think it could go for more. Why don't you let them know what happened over this last week? Well, we found out that a 7.0 will not sell for $3 million. <laughs> but it, or would it? So that, okay, this is where it gets a little confusing, all right, and where you got to take a deeper dive. So a 7.0 sold, I believe, in 2022, okay, for $2.6 million. We just watched a 7.0. I don't know if it's the same one or not, but we, it might, actually, it is probably the same one because I think there's only two 7.0s. But it's not the same one from the Selling Superman documentary. We, we got to clarify that, too. But, yeah, that's a great point. That is not the one, which just sold for $1.6 million. That's a $1 million drop, okay? So... You wonder now, how could that be? What is going on? Is it the market? Is it um, something different? All right. This book was auctioned off by a sports card company, primarily known as a sports card company, okay, Golden Auctions. All right. Shout out to them because they do some great content sports related. So this book, and I'm not sure where who, who owns it. I don't know if Golden owns it, okay, and they're trying to promote their comic side. But if they don't own it and they were convinced by this company to sell it through a sports card auction house, you're gambling. I mean, you're truly gambling. You need to go through proper channels. I want to know, as a Golden Age specialist, we've talked about this adjustment period that we're in. We say drops on the show a lot because, hey, when a book goes from $1,000 to $300 in a year, it's dropped. But... The majority of the books that we discuss and the price fluctuations that they've experienced since the comic boom are still above where they were prior to the comic boom. They're just not as high because we are in an adjustment period. But I want to know from the Golden Age side, is it the same? Because I suspect that it hasn't been. Yeah, I mean, Golden Age is still uh, staying fairly strong. It feels like there's consistency in that market. It's either where it's at or it's up. So to see that million-dollar drop, it's tough because you can also take into consideration one other thing. I think at that time when that 7.0 sold, it may have been the second highest graded. But someone did take one of those 8.0s because there were two 8.0s and got that um, upped to an 8.5. So now that 7.0 is no longer second highest graded. It is now the third highest graded. Could that have caused an effect for the price? Potentially. That much of a difference? I don't think so. Um, I have picked up books, and I'm sure all of us have for the most part. Maybe not Ryan, because I'm 
sure he doesn't dive into that deep on the collectible side of it. But it matters where you find books, right? Whether it's the the uh, inexperienced dealer at a convention, whether it's that odd website that happened to find a collection in the neighborhood or some other auction house in your area. Okay, so I think that is probably the largest factor is where this was sold. So again, I can't help but reiterate that it is important that when you choose to sell your book, you choose it either, you choose the platform you want to put it to and make sure you choose wisely like we did last week. Choose wisely. Same thing here, man. I mean, a million dollars? That's a lot of green, comic fam. A million dollar loss. I mean, I don't think I've seen a drop that significant since we've started this show in five years and books have never gotten as high. Like, this could be one of the biggest potential losses that's happened in over a decade. There cannot be a larger recorded loss. Not many books even hit the million dollar mark. So imagine a book so expensive, so important to the hobby. I mean, this is a rare book. When I say rare, I mean it's increased in the amount of copies. It's not that graded. great, though, dude. Superman 1 is dope, but it's it's a mostly reprinted material. Yeah, it's mostly reprinted. Um, I think there's four reprinted stories and some new material in there. Including Action 1. Including Action 1, right? So, And I think Action 7 as well is in there. So you have Superman 1, which has got a great cover. It's a classic cover. It's in 1939. There's about 70 or so graded copies. That's half of a Batman 1. I mean, a Batman 1 has about 140 graded copies. Action 1's about 40-ish. So, I mean, you're kind of looking at that amount of graded books, but it's very coveted. Maybe 2.6 was high. 1.6 sounds low for this book, historically speaking. Even if you split the difference, it's just it should have easily have sold over $2 million, I think. And that's another thing to uh, point out there. You started the conversation off by saying you don't know if the auction house has any type of investment in it. Now, we're not saying, you know, we're hypothesizing at this point, but like I know that there have been examples in the past where an auction house will incent a seller to bring something to the to the site, you know, they'll, they'll cut a deal. They'll give like a safety net or of some kind. They may even pay to have it sold there. So there's other factors at play that that 1.6 may not feel as terrible as it appears. It's just a million dollars. I mean, that's a lot to combat. And it's tough to imagine that these sellers would be super stoked about that unless the auction house knew that this is kind of what would happen. And I can't believe that they didn't. Yeah, and you know, this actually sparks a memory for me because there was a Tech 27 that recently sold um, that I was bidding on, knowing, thinking that it was going to go way high. So I was just like, oh, I'll just throw in a bid. I'm never going to win this book. And it went lower than what I thought. I mean, I talked to the person who won it, and they were looking to immediately flip it because they were shocked that they even got it. So, I mean, maybe we're just... I mean, maybe there's a little pullback on some of those ultra-high-level grade books. It's hard to tell because they trade... Um, they don't trade that often, but there is, I believe, a Superman 1 coming up in a couple auctions. So this is really going to tell us what the true market is, because I think there might be a 3-0 and maybe a 5-0. We'll get back to you. We'll do a follow-up on it, keep a tr keep track of the Superman market. But um, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting thing to see a book drop a million dollars. Let us know what you think in the comment section below about this drop. I mean, safe to say the biggest drop that we've seen and possibly the biggest drop that's publicly recorded. And hit the subscribe button because we're back 
hitting deadlines, feeling good about keeping the podcast going, trying to do it like twice a month, if not more. And when we see that next Superman hit the market, you know we're going to be back at the table to discuss it. Just like we like to come to the table with comic books. It's not just about spending a million dollars on comics. It's not just about spending $20 on variants or $50 on keys. Nah, you know, you got to keep up with your pull list, yo. And Ryan, what did you read? Because I'm looking at Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips, and I know it's good when I see those names. This is my personal favorite creative team in the history of comic books. Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, when they get together, like it always, always works. They're so good that they don't need to release single comics to tell a story, which is almost unheard of. They just write the whole thing out, draw it all, and put it in this hardcover book and say, go and get the damn story. And then we all do, and we all love it. This is Night Fever. Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips just came out this last week, and Tom is right. This is it. This did not come out in single issues before this. This was in the catalog as a $25 hardcover, one-shot hardcover story, which is the way they do it now because, again, like Tom said, the things they create are so good and so popular and so successful that they don't have to go through the direct market you know, single-issue format first, which I think is fun. It makes it for a nice change of pace from your weekly pull list stuff. Dude, how many reckless volumes have they made in the last couple of years? It's got to be over a few. Yeah, they made the uh, the crime drama series Reckless, which, again, gets a fantastic recommendation from myself and Tom as well. We both read those. Uh, they did five of those in two years. And actually, in the back of, of Night Fever here, they said, uh, we did five Reckless books in two years. We wanted to take a little break. But instead of taking an actual break, we just wrote something else instead. You know, they're not really taking a break. They're just switching gears, which I appreciate because I love everything they do. What's the cover price on that? Twenty four ninety nine. Ah. Okay, that makes sense, right? You like you put a $25 price tag on the quality versus the quantity and and it's about as far as like length goes, it's about what a normal trade is. You know, I read this in like a half hour. What's it about, less. Ryan? This is a story about an American guy, a kind of a, a shy bookish sort of nerdy guy who goes on a business trip over to France for his book company that he was part of, and he gets wrapped up in some kind of mistaken identity thing at a bar where somebody says, "Oh, you're you're this guy." And he's like, "Uh, yeah." I'll just pretend to be a different guy, and that sets him off on this total weird, nightmarish trip that he takes where he ends up doing a bunch of really dark stuff under the cover of this other guy's identity because now he feels free, and he's got this other personality that he can kind of just fall into. It's, uh, it's got, like, echoes of, like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in that sense. There's a lot of, like, Alfred Hitchcock kind of thriller suspense aspects in here, but also sort of like a Fight Club Tyler Durden sort of vibe going on in here. He meets this guy who really unlocks the primal side of him that uh, it's it's creepy it's a little creepy it's a cool it's a cool really quick one shot graphic novel i i definitely recommend it some bill murray man who knew too little vibes did you flush there's got to be at least one person who knows that joke add this to your poll list i don't even need to read it to know that it's going to be quality because this is a powerhouse and some of the best is in regards to creative teams in comic books right now yeah, read everything they do, just like me. Go read Criminal if you haven't already. That's, that's my favorite thing they've ever done. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the creator of Bad Idea, Dinesh Shanasani, to the show. Here with my good friend Dinesh Comic Fam, you're in for a treat. As soon as I saw the Vice release of the most expensivest and you brought the comics to the table and blew his mind, I was hoping I can get you here today to just chat with me a little bit about that process yeah. and how it went down. Yeah, happy to, happy to. Excited about doing that. All right, so of course we have Dinesh, but you do so much. What's the best rundown if someone wants to like oh, learn about who you are? Because you're a man of many things. I um, am the CEO and chief creative officer of Bad Idea. We're a comic book publisher. 
Uh, I run a film and TV company, and I have a, a vinyl toy company. And I guess I'm a collector as well. A collector of fine items, collectibles, and you blew two chains mine. So you can go check this video out. I'm not gonna like rehash every beat of the video. We did that on the podcast already. Yeah. However, what I wanted to first find out is when this started and you knew that you had to blow his mind, what was the process of collecting and choosing the products? Did they ask you specific? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was them. They had a very specific mandate in mind. They wanted, actually this whole thing started with Key Collector. They reached out to Key Collector, Key Collector. Youth Code Tom 101, the best comic app in existence for a free two weeks. Support the show. Shout out Nick Kalanese. Nick's awesome. So Nick got in touch. He was like, hey, I got these guys some most expensivest. They want someone in LA that has a big, cool collection. I thought of you. Can you do it? Can you, uh, can you do it soon? I said, sure, I'll get on the phone with them. They said, we want things, comics, that are very rare and very expensive. And so I did a little Zoom with them. I showed them some books. They picked not all the ones I would have picked. They didn't want Action One. They didn't want any art. I showed them a Mark Jeweler's Uncanny X-Men 266. And they were like, that's amazing. And I was like, here's the original art to the cover. And they're like, nah, we're good. I was like, are you sure? No, we just want that book. Wow. So they picked. It was their whatever they had in mind. No kidding. So um, they declined a bunch of stuff. Did they give you like dollar amounts they were after? They wanted the higher the dollar, the better. But they wanted more than that. They wanted unique things, really rare things. You pulled out my favorite part of the entire bit was when you transitioned from, I think it was Amazing Spider-Man, Cap 1, and then you pull out Conceptual Funnies. Yes. So yes. Did, was that plan, the Invisible Comic, or did you just have that locked in? No, loaded? that was not approved. Most of us <laughs> did not approve that. Uh, I, ha you know, I, I have a job to do. I would be irresponsible if I didn't pimp that idea a little bit. Uh, so I brought it, and I snuck it in there, and it made the cut. A lot of stuff didn't make the cut. The interview was long. It was like an hour, hour and a half, uh, but that made the cut. Any stories about the interview process or hang out? What, what was 2 Chains like? I didn't really get a chance. I mean, he's very warm and friendly on camera. Beyond that, I think he was very focused on the show. I don't know if he had studied comics and that was trying to remember things. Well, maybe before we go further, for anyone who hasn't seen the video, what are these uh, sessions typically like? Because I've seen 2 Chains get or have these meetings with people who just bring out like really expensive cigars or marijuana yeah. or water. Like he's just there to get kind of stoned is what it looks like. Was he pretty, was he, he pretty was, stony? He was completely out there. How, just gone. I mean, I wasn't, when he walked in, I wasn't sure he knew where he was. It was awesome. It was everything you wanted to be. He's just like a giant banana and he's out of his mind stone. Amazing. <laughs> okay, so you go in there, you didn't really get a chance to meet him beforehand. So this was like an authentic reaction to everything. Yes, and I didn't really get to talk to him afterwards because it didn't go well. It looks great on camera, but there was a, there was a couple, there was one moment in particular where I think he was like, I don't like this guy at all. Oh, can you can you get into a little that sure, a little bit? Sure. Like what what didn't he like? We were talking about books, and we were talking about. I was explaining that a lot of times in comics they'll platform characters. A character will appear in a bigger book and then go on to do his own thing. I showed him Hulk 181, sure, famously first Wolverine, and he said, Oh my God, that's the first minutes of Wolverine. I love Wolverine. Who doesn't love Wolverine? I said, Yep, this is it. He goes, I need that book, I want that book. I said, great, that, it's quite a common book in other grades. In this grade also, if you're willing to spend the money, you can find if you wait a little bit. He said, well, well I want that one. You only wanted yours. I was like, well, I, I'm not really looking to sell this one. And he said, well, well, how much would it be? And at that point, those books were about 150, uh, 150,000. So I said to him, 150,000, but for you, two chains, for you. And he went, oh yeah, for me, what? What's the price? And I go, 250. <laughs> you know, like a terrible dad joke. 
because uh, you've got all these lights. I don't. It's intimidating. Sure. And uh, and he got he went real like he lost character went real quiet, and he just he leaned into me and he said, you know I have a lot of power here, and I thought he was doing a bit, and then he said I can have this whole segment cut. It's like you would never hear. I'm like, okay, I don't. I thought I was doing you guys a favor. You're like, I'm just doing a joke right here, brother. He got really angry. I looked at the director, and the director's like, go and keep going. This is good stuff. <laughs> and then, and then he snapped back in, and he was good. So you pissed two chains off just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, sounds like it was a little bit of an awkward moment there. Was your perception that he didn't really know much about comics? Because like when I was watching him talk, compared to the other interviews I've seen him do, yeah, it seems like. You know, hey, it's cool to see expensive stuff, but it's like kind of a funny thing more than, you know, like a novelty type of thing. But when you were showing him comics, I saw like a different twinkle in his eyes. Yeah, I think he was yeah. valuing it a little bit different, mostly because it's Americana, it's history. But what was your vibe? Did it feel different? Yeah, yeah. What, what, I talked to the director about this afterwards. I said that was interesting. I didn't expect that. I expected him to, to not really be aware or maybe have done a little research and then have that emotional distance. He said, no, no, this is the kind of stuff he loves. He loves comic books. He loves Americana. He loves geek culture. He doesn't know that much about comic books. He's not an expert like everyone here is at, at, at the con, but he watches, I'm sure, the movies. He's aware in, through osmosis, like, like other people are, of what the big books are. And I think seeing them got him very excited. Did you get a chance to bring up any other bad idea stuff besides the Invisible Comic? Uh, no, no, I, I, I tried to limit to just to that. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I and did, you, I did, a couple people knew I was going to go, and they, they were like, give, give me a shout-out, give, give my, my, my book a shout-out, give, and I gave a couple of shout-outs, tried to weave them in, they all got cut. Yeah, anything that got cut that you, you wish maybe didn't? Um, I brought, uh, I think it got cut, I actually haven't seen the final edit in its whole, I can't, I can't watch it. I brought, um, these DC Ashcans, uh, the Superboy, Supergirl, Ashcans, they are uh, used to secure trademarks in the 40s. The OG ones. OG ones, black and white. The interiors are just another book. They put them together, send them to the trademark office, secure a trademark. They're super rare. Uh, I think one of them was one of two, and the other one's the only one in the world. Yeah. And they're historical items. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't think that made the cut. All right, so you mentioned um, original art being some of the things that you suggested you bring. What would be the rundown if you had... The option to blow his mind with five pieces of original art in your collection that you would break out. I actually showed them five, so so I can do this. I showed them um, Spidey 300, the cover. Todd McFarlane, you still own it, yeah? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's at the um, Beyond Amazing Spider-Man the exhibit right now in uh, Kansas City. It's awesome. They did a great I, I job. I really want to see this in person one day, dude. I, I'll get you hooked up with them. They'll send you out there. Um, Ultimate Fallout 4. The cover, first Miles Morales. Yeah, that's right. You got that next gen OG spec. Dude, that book, that book. Did you see the new movie? Of course I've seen it. Fantastic. Fant amazing. Can't wait for the next one. Those two, um, I had the first page from Daredevil 1. Bill Everett. Daredevil 1, Bill Everett, yeah. First ever Daredevil. What else did I, what else did I show him? Um, uh, Uncanny 266. I showed that cover. I yeah. love that cover. And then there was something modern. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was a modern interior page, a first appearance page, but I can't remember what it is right now. You have a pretty big uh, next-gen original art collection. Deadpool. It was Deadpool. New Mutant 98 page. Right. Rob Liefeld. Love Rob Liefeld. Me too. It's awesome. I think he's a great dude. He's killing it on whatnot, too. I don't know if you ever watched any of his streams. Oh. oh. Rob Liefeld, unfiltered, just chilling in front of a camera selling comics. He has a clamp like this. And he puts the comic in it. 
and it makes it an instant 9-4, nine, nine and you love every <laughs> second of it. Oh, my God. He's just riffing, man. He should charge tickets for that. If he's I, just going I'd off. Pay. I'd pay to, to, to be there to I'm watch him do his thing for two hours. Amazing. So, um, this is really cool. I, I, I enjoyed the video partially because big fan of 2 chains. Yeah. It's funny to see a reaction to comic books, something we all love. But also seeing comics enter into the mainstream, it's super special. Um, it's just, it doesn't happen often. So when it does, seeing someone like yourself who respects us so much, it helps the industry. And I just want to give you the kudos and Thanks, um, also ask, like, what other things do you think could be happening? Because you're literally doing things with bad idea that's never been done, kind of paving the way for new publishers and independent companies to, like, get their footing in this market. Um, you're now bre breaking into the mainstream with some of this stuff. What other things in comics do you want to see more of? I mean, I, lo I love exactly what you're talking about. Shows like Most Adventures, there's so many shows like that, they should be talking about comics. It is the beating heart of not just pop culture, but culture now across the globe. That museum I talked about, Beyond Amazing Spider-Man, that's amazing. The, I went to the opening night, and it, there was all these kids. So, I mean, like a sea of kids, under 10 years old, dressed like Miles, dressed like Gwen, Spider-Gwen. It's amazing, that's the next generation, right? So that's what we've got to see. I think those kinds of things, um, I love the crowdfunding world that's happening right now. It makes comic books a little more um, easy to, to get. You don't have to go to a store if you're not near a store. Yo, plug Digital. your recent major success. We did a book called Megalith. The, I think the most beautiful book you, you will ever see. This gentleman told me about Megalith four years ago? Yeah, yeah. Five, maybe five years maybe ago. Maybe five. You're like, yo, I've been working on this book for a long time, and when it's done, it's going to be amazing. And it, and it is. Louis LaRosse is the artist. He's done the work of his career, putting so much other stuff to shame. Matt Kinsaw, writer. Laura Martin, best colorist in the history of comics. Taylor Esposito. And then we had this, like, who's who of comics people come in to celebrate. And it did very well for us. What did it hit on Kickstarter? About $400,000. $400,000. It's amazing. And we're going we're gonna, to, because we're irresponsible, we're going to sink a lot of that, almost all of that, right back into the book. So we've been talking about enlarging the size of it, adding an acetate dust jet, all sorts of crazy stuff. I love it. That's yeah, gonna be cool. What do we got going on over a bad idea? We're just we're just grinding away, man. We've got a slew of books coming out. We did a bad idea two, which is like our, our big second slate, part one. And then we've got bad idea two part two coming. I hate to say it. Usually when you do two slates, you look at the books and you go, Okay, let's put some of the ones we like the best here and some of the ones we like the best here. This time we said, let's put all the ones we like the most over here. So Bad Idea Two Part Two, I think are the best books I've ever been involved with. Megalith was meant to be in there. We pulled it out to give it a bigger audience through crowdfunding. But that's, that's an example of the quality of Bad Idea Part 2. Wow. You're just, just raising the bar. I assume it's because after multiple failures. I mean, Bad Idea has already gone under twice. Yeah. Um, and came back as a donut company. Yeah. And then that counts as a failure too, right? Because that's... It's that not... Gone? Yeah, donuts are gone. There's all, they're all There's done. no money in donuts, turns is, out. Is that, was that a shock to you? You know, it's a big zero. I should have known. You know, man, what's your favorite kind of donut? Oh, the Krispy Kreme glazed, just original. You don't glazed. like anything inserted in the donut? No jelly, no cream, nothing like that. When I was a kid, I used to eat jelly donuts, uh, and I can't do it anymore. I think that passion that you lost is probably why the donut grind didn't really work for you guys. But I am excited to see that you flipped it back, got back into publishing. Yeah. Um, but I don't love donuts. You're right. Are you, More of a cupcake is there guy. A part of you that's worried about that idea making it this uh, third round. Is there a party that's worried? I, yeah, I you're like you. Not. You guys had a couple failures, and now you're back. No, I, I think I think everyone's excited for us. We okay. they're like, hey, good good for you. You know, you you, you fell back, down a couple back times. Kid, you know, but you don't give up. Okay. We're like, like the that. guys, you know, like at the Olympics when the 100 meters they shoot the gun and then someone trips. 
and then there's no chance they're winning, but they cross the line and everyone just gives them that slow, that's us. That's it's, a bad idea. It's some of the most unique marketing I've seen in comics, and, and I applaud it. It's been fun to cover every random thing that happens. Um, seeing not just myself, but all my friends get memed the hell holding signs at yeah. New York City Comic Con. Yeah. That was great. It was great. Um, constantly seeing books land on various collectors' lists because of comics being a little bit more difficult to acquire or just so wanted and people not having gone through the, uh, the grind of securing them ahead of time. Um, it's just, it causes excitement that feels like comics years ago, you know? Yeah, and I think, I think the industry is responding. I've been really surprised. We're doing this because this is fun to us and it's different. We did the Valiant thing, the traditional thing. That would have been boring. We're trying to break new ground, maybe try and build a better mousetrap in some ways. But now I'm seeing all these creators come in Huge Joe Quesada, Lenio Francis, you, James Harron, Mike Carey, all these amazing creators coming to us, knocking on our door, saying, hey, that's fun. I want to be involved in that. It's like, oh, I, I guess this is valid. This is not just us being idiots. Follow Dinesh, but more importantly, follow Bad Idea yep. Comics over on Instagram. Um, sign up to their newsletter. That's how I keep up with all things that you guys got cooking over there. Thanks. Thanks and, for calling. Uh, I appreciate you, my brother. It's always good to see you. Thanks, Tom. And as always... Geek responsibly. Make sure to follow Bad Idea over on Instagram. Sign up to their newsletter to keep up on all the unique marketing that they're doing. You know, bringing mainstream to comic books, I'm digging it. Jeff, you pissed some people off this last week. Talk about it. <laughs> all right, so you know the collection we're working on, all right? So I do know the collection we're working on. It's yeah. massive, and it's taking forever, and comics aren't selling that great. No, no, and so I was like, okay, you know what I should try after opening up this box that I did? I did this opening on Instagram. And give me a follow on Golden Age Guru on Instagram, and you can watch the video. And I thought, maybe I'll just sell the whole box at once. Because these boxes, they all have dates on them, because this is all from one buyer, and he would just get boxes from Midtown. He put the year on them, and uh, is it not Midtown? No, no, it's not Midtown. It's Mile, Mile High. High. Yeah, yeah, Mile, Mile High. High. Excuse me. He gets a box from Mile High, has a 1997 on the box, and then everything on the inside of that box is from 1997. However, there was a lot of different things that come out, and he was specking. He was like 25 copies of Gambit number 13, you know, it's just random stuff. But you're having some fun over on Instagram just doing a box break to see what's in there because we're finding some cool books. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely cool books, and you realize how much isn't, and then you're just ending with this, this quantity of stuff, and it's like every box has the year correct, but it's also separated by the month that came out. So you're like, okay, I don't know what came out in March of 1997. So I open up one box, and then so to make the video fun, I'll put, like, uh, the price of the book in its grade. Yeah, because right? if you're just showing, like, 100 books, it doesn't really mean much to the majority of people. But you're putting, like, oh, it's 10 bucks a book. Yeah. There's 10 books. That's 100 bucks. Hey! Yeah, near mint, $70 or $100 or near mint, 9-4, you know? So I then tallied the total, and then um, through editing, I kind of messed it up. But whatever, the, the big story is I put a price on it. And then I saw uh, a specific comment, and one of the comments was talking about how people, dealers, will price a book um, at 9.4 when it's raw. And then somebody else followed up that comment and replied to it, saying along the lines of, you know, so kind of tired of it or sick of it. 9.4 raw book as a graded 9.4 is what right, you mean. Right, right. Okay. Pricing a raw 9.4 the same as a CGC 9.4 or CBCS, you know, whatever. And I started thinking, I was like, okay, that's an interesting conversation, right? Should you price a raw 9.4 the same as a CGC 9.4? Okay. And if the answer is no, 
well, when do you get the right to price a book the same as a slabbed book? Do you ever get that right? And then what are you putting the value on? Are you putting the value on the grade from a third-party company that most people bitch about anyway in their grading? Are you putting the, the value on it being encapsulated? I mean, there's so many little ways you can go down it. I want to know from the community in the comment section below, but I think I want to kick this to Ryan first because I do have some thoughts on this. But as someone who doesn't spend a whole lot of money on like 9.8s, et cetera, what is your feeling about seeing, let's say, a 9.4 raw copy and knowing you can get a 9.4 graded copy? Should those prices be the same? And then the same question in regards to a 9.6, a 9.8, et cetera. My gut instinct as somebody who has never dabbled with this side of collecting before is that if it's a 9.4 raw book, you should probably pay less for it than a 9.4 slab copy because you're not guaranteed that it will actually be a 9.4 if you submit it and you get it back. That just seems to be how I feel. But then there's also this weird caveat to not all 9.4s are worth a bunch of money. So let's use an, the example that you're giving, Jeff, is like, all right, you have like a $100 9.4 graded and you have a same book 9.4 what do you price that at with the hundred dollars being the benchmark but if you have a ten dollar book that's a 9.4 you get it graded you may be able to get just over cost of getting it graded for that 9.4 slabbed if it's like a modern book call it 40 bucks do you grade that ten dollar book only $10 or do you grade it 40? Like the lower you go, the harder it is to make these decisions because at a certain point, some books shouldn't be graded. And it goes a little further than that for me because I'm just like, I'm not saying like there's a 9.4 here and then a 9.4 next to it and you choose the raw. Like most likely you're obviously going to go with the graded, but I appeal makes a difference too. Like if this 9.4 looks better than this 9.4, okay, am I going to buy it? And then, and I, and I probably would. Okay, because I'm going to go through it. I'm going to know how to grade. So for with that being said, on the raw books, at what point is it okay that a dealer grades a book at the same price? Like, where are we putting the value? Because CGC hasn't always been around. It's only been around since 2000. Comics were being graded long before that, okay? So we're giving the power to the grading company. And, and I get that, and that makes total sense to me. But I do feel that some dealers have created the amount of people that they have who show up to buy from them because they are good graders. So I don't want to take away from somebody who knows how to grade. Like I said, we already hate on CDC's grading. So now when it comes time to pull the trigger on a book, now we're going to say it's okay. Now it's all right. So it's like you kind of almost have to decide and decipher. And I don't know if there's one answer. Like most likely – you're going to buy the graded copy if it's there. But if it's not there, am I going to go with the 9.4? Yes. And then when I say I need a discount because it's not graded, what is the appropriate percentage? Because everyone's going to have an own number in their head, right? So is it 10%, 5%? Is it even a percentage, right? So there's a lot to think about. So is it fair to get upset with somebody pricing at a CGC price if there isn't a, a clear set of rules? So one thing that I've adapted, and I never really thought much of it, but when you brought this up to discuss on the, on the podcast, it made me kind of look internally like, all right, well, how do I handle this for my own selling? And I've always gone back to the Overstreet. Um, there's only pricing up to 9.2 in Overstreet, and that's for good reason. They even say it in there. It's like once you get past a certain point, 
it's kind of arbitrary. Like you have to kind of go with what the market says. This is why it's a, it's a range of sorts. So everything up to a 9.2, I'll price the same. There, there's no difference to me, you know? Um, granted, a 9.2 multi-thousand dollar book, that may be a little different. Um, and once I get to that point, because again, there's caveats to all of this, I would then go by what the market's saying by looking up, you know, recent uh, sold listings, you know? What has a near mint copy or a 9.2 copy gone for raw? And that may be different than a 9.2 or graded 9.4 copy of the same book. But I tend to stick within that 9.2 range before I start adjusting the price and thinking twice about it. But once you get to like 9.6, 9.8, there's a clear difference in the community. And it's uh, it's so much to an extent that I'm not even <laughs> talking about 9.6s and 9.8s because we would all agree if you're selling a 9.8 comic book raw – you're taking such a risk because it is very subjective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't buy a 9.8 raw book or 9.6 raw book uh, without seeing it in person, first of all. Probably even a 9.4, I'll be honest with you. Um, so, but yeah, the dollar amount does make a difference. But, like, am I going to be okay pricing a, let's see, Brave and the Bull 28, okay? VG Plus raw. Can I price that the same as a 4.5 VG Plus slab? I think I should have the right to price that, right? Don't, I would think because the grade isn't so exceptional and then there's a lot that trade in there. So for me, I justify it as like, I think I should be able to do that. Now, do you as a buyer have the right now to negotiate because you're coming from a different point, a little more strength now? You're like, you know, I can't guarantee this, okay? You can start a conversation easier and then maybe that person will be able to knock it down for you a little bit. But should you be upset if he says no? I, I don't think so. I don't think you have that right. Like the amount of work that people have to go through to get comics alone and present them to you. And I think there's a little disconnect between buyer and seller when it comes in this hobby. The buyers feel like the sellers are there for them. You know, like we're here. They, they can't survive without us. It's And it's not like that. It's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. Okay, so. It takes a lot of work to get these books and to get them in a, in a way to where you, they can present them for sale is a whole nother topic, right? You're like, okay, I have to buy it right so I can present it right and negotiate right with the, with the buyer. I'm going to make them an offer he can't refuse. The seller needs to realize that the buyer is coming with only so much money and they're educated and there's a lot of things that they are coming with. And once we can all get on the same page, it shouldn't be a contest. It shouldn't be a pissing match. If it's not the right book for me, it's not the right book for you. And so it's, I just feel like there needs to be a little bit more understanding between the two parts. Keep it less aggressive. But I do think if the book is raw, you have a position to come with and negotiate. And you should feel okay to do that. But you should also be okay with somebody pricing it raw at a graded price. Because if, they are, if you trust that dealer, number one thing, trusting the dealer. And there's a lot of good dealers out there who know how to grade. And some will even undergrade. Okay, so you got to look into that. And then there's ones that don't. So if you're going to a trusted dealer, and especially one that can that offers a return, there's a lot of big dealers out there that do the right thing. So if something does happen, you can go back to them. You know, I, I just this community just needs to be a little bit more understanding of both sides. I think there's a pretty big percentage of individuals who may be throwing out their opinion about certain types of dealing that they've never experienced and. 95% plus of collectors aren't going to dabble in books that are a thousand plus dollars. So I think there's also a, a, a caveat to this of 
well, you know, they're maybe speaking out of ignorance because they haven't actually gone through that process because I'm, I for one was shopping for a blue chip silver age key last year and secured the journey 83 behind me. And when comparing this journey 83 to others, I was looking at like how the back looks like, you know, because that's actually what was causing the, the price to drop on one uh, 3.0 versus another or a white pager versus another. And looking at the pricing, it's like, well, it's not as simple as 3.0 equals this amount. I appeal was a huge part of this. And when you're talking about lower grade stuff, that grade could be affected by something on the inside of the book. So for me, I'm fine having a 3.0 that presents like a four or a five versus a 3.0 that's interiors are beautiful, but it's missing a corner of, well, in this case, let's say Thor's left foot. Yeah, and you would pay more for a nicer 3.0 than you would, you know, for a normal 3.0. I just want to read. I just want to read comics. This conversation's all over my head. I just well, want to read. Well, how do you get those comics? Yeah. Yeah, it's trades. Well, you got to buy Omnids. them, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't buy anything at all from a store outside uh, of off the rack. My pull list. My modern, brand new stuff. So you don't buy any back issues? To fill a run. Well, there you Working go. Working on my Green Lantern stuff. All right, roast Ryan in the chat because we got to get him buying more comic book collectibles. But I don't want you to slow your reading down because you're bringing some good stuff to I'm the like, table. I just want to read. Let me know in the comment section below because this kind of pricing conversation affects way more than just graded comic books or affordable collectible pieces. It affects the comics that are at LCSs. It is the foundation of the overall reader's market that Ryan defends so passionately. Um, if you want to join our community so we can send you comics every month, I encourage you to do so because we have a packed box going out, one per box, two gorgeous exclusives. One is a Silk Number 1 uh, Bjorn Berens variant. It's a beautiful cover. Trade dress is going out, one per box. And we also have a Peach Momoko ASM 26 Death of Kamala Khan trade dress also going out, one per box. It's a $35 box of comics. We pack it with love and care. And you can set it and forget it if you want. You can cancel any time, but it's only 35 bucks plus shipping, and you support what we do and get comics at your door from us. So I don't know if you guys have watched yet. There is a new Stan Lee documentary that just dropped on Disney+. Plus. I saw the trailer for this. I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but the trailer looked pretty good. It got me excited to watch it. I probably will. But at the same time, I couldn't help but think to myself, this is really cool and all, but I would really like to see a Jack Kirby documentary. And apparently, I'm not the only one who thought so because we got a tweet last week from his son, Neil Kirby. Seems like he kind of wants uh, something similar as well. Yeah, it seems like uh, there's a lot of disdain over on the family side of Kirby trying to defend his legacy a bit more because for years, Stan Lee has been, quote, the man of Marvel Comics. I mean, he had... Marvel on his shoulders that he uplifted in a market that was in a constant state of almost dying and him kind of embodying that, you know, almost mascot for all the titles and being tied as a creative um, at minimum inspiration to all these characters, or at least many of the characters will get into it is largely why we have comic books to this day and why he's getting a documentary. Unfortunately, there's a lot of creators that didn't get the type of credit that they deserved, but this started a long time ago. And I wanted to bring this conversation, not just to the comic fan, but here as well at the table, because I think there is an aspect of 
understanding the creative, what goes into this hobby and industry that we all love, that has largely gone unspoken about for far too long. And it still affects the market to this very day. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's an interesting conversation. We hear it all the time. I don't think this is ever going to get re- any resolution to it. You know, it's a, this disconnect. Um, there's a strong group of people in this hobby who feel like, you know, Jack Kirby has maybe been ripped off and Stanley has stolen, taken all the credit and glory. Okay. And it's been a long history between those two. I mean, we're talking back to when Marvel was timely, you know, back in the 40s here. All right. They've worked together. And I think some of that history between them has shifted between both of them, especially Jack. You know, Jack did so much. I mean, he is Jack the King Kirby. So we're talking about Awesome Lee, whatever. We're also talking King Kirby. He, he has his own title, all right? A lot of people respect him. Now, the problem, I believe, mostly um, becomes in this current age. Unfortunately, Jack passed in 1994. I mean, come on. The glory days of comics, of all that he's put into it, unfortunately have come post-mortem for him and that's it's that sucks and now you have the family members trying to battle for his memory both whether it be for financial gain whether it be a combination of just uh, emotional um because i mean jack's son neil the specific one i think he's had four kids okay i think he's in his 70s so he has seen Jack go through the tumultuous relationship of his rise and being pushed around and Jack never getting probably the dues that he probably should have received for as much as he's contributed, but he has not forgotten. Everyone remembers. So he just needs I, – I, I feel like blaming Lee is not the way to go. Well, this is the quote from Neil Kirby that I wanted to bring. We have a couple of them this show, but this kind of like plays to to what you're describing here. Because we all know what Stan did. You know, he was the person on camera. He was the person talking to groups, going to conventions, and he was the hype man. You know, he was doing everything, keeping comics alive, doing what he could, right? Um, This is a quote from the Neil Kirby tweet. My father worked at home in his Long Island basement studio we referred to as quote, the dungeon, usually 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Most of the artists, writers, inkers, etc., worked at home, not in the Marvel offices as depicted in the program. Through middle and high school, I was able to stand at my father's left shoulder, peer through a cloud of cigar smoke, and witness the Marvel universe being created. I am by no means a comic historian, but there are few, if any, that have personally seen or experienced what I have and know the truth with first-hand knowledge. 14-plus hours a day in, quote, the dungeon. And that right there is what it took the King Kirby to come up with all the things that he was able to do to build the Marvel Universe. You know, it took this this, this crazy amount of effort and, and painstaking work, uh, very, very professional and, and diligent, and someone who, like, woke up with the urge to draw and draw and draw and never stop, and he never did, right? I mean, until, until the 80s. And I think that the difference between Jack and Stan was just that. The only way that Jack would have been able to get this information out were to have more people know what he was going through to create the Marvel Universe, at least to have his, his major part of it. And when you fast forward to the internet age, you know, where we are now, it's that type of communication that doesn't 
even happen enough to this day that prevent creators from getting their dues as much. But all the while, Stan was in the spotlight because that's what comics needed at the time. So I agree with you. Is there some, you know, differences here? Absolutely. And should Jack get more credit? Absolutely. But should Stan get less credit? I think not. I think that his ego that was demonized in Neil's quote in his tweet is something that kept comics alive for a long time. He had to be that suave writer. He had to be that cool cat, you know, because we're talking about funny books, dude. It's for kids, you know. He was kind of embarrassed at the beginning. He wanted to write, like, books and was able to create so much and have, you know, so many ties to other works that it uplifted Marvel as, as, a, as a medium for comics for such a long time. But I do think that there, it's, not, it's not about Stan getting less credit. It's about the other creators getting more credit. And without more speaking about what they went through and what they did to be able to get to this point, especially since so many of them have passed, I mean, we're going to still see this type of disdain, and it's never going to stop. I think part of it you got to consider too the uh, the Marvel method, right? The way they created comics back then in the first place, where the uh, the writer did some work, but the artist uh, did a lot more of the heavy lifting than I think a lot of comic artists do today, where they are actually structuring and contributing dialogue and story developments. And when you consider that when they created Spider Man, Stanley was just like, "Let's make a guy named Spider Man," and then Steve Ditko kind of comes in and makes him this weird guy in this full body suit who can stick to walls and designs so much of the you know you know the lasting important elements of the character it does raise the question you know how much do you give credit to each person for their individual contributions to the whole yeah i mean i look at it like this for me okay um i don't think it's one or the other i don't think you get to the point that um marvel's gotten to with just one artist okay or just one writer you know i look at it as Let's just say, let's look at it as this is a metaphor. There's a balloon, a deflated balloon on a table. And there's all kinds of great balloons, right? There's beautiful shiny ones and all that. But that balloon is laying there, sitting there, all right? Now, what makes that balloon exciting? Filling it with air and getting it to float, all right? So you have the, this, this flat thing on the table. So you have this art, right? But it needs something. It needs the story for it to really soar. Right, So do you love a character's design? Is that what's going to get you to buy a book, or is it going to be the story? It's going to be the story and the character together. right? So for when I look at it, I see Jack Kirby, who is the artist, and I see Stanley, and we know he's a storyteller. You can tell. The guy has told stories his entire life. He's been there since 1942, I believe, All right, to the very end. All right, Jack didn't do that. Steve Ditko didn't do that. I don't know if anyone's done that. All right. So he has earned his echelon in my eyes. Well, now, could he have taken more credit? Sure. But like I said, Jack Kirby was known, according to Lee, Lee even said it, that he drew out the panels and then filled in the text to go with the excitement of it. It's a collaboration of the two. It's not one or the other. Raise them both up. Raise everybody up to a high level. When it comes down to it, though, the main frustration in this tweet and really amongst many comic fans is that over the course of Stanley's career, he's taken hard ownership of the creations. This is a quote in regards to Spider-Man. It was my idea, therefore I created the character. Done. That's it. It was my idea. 
I created it. You know, rights are involved. He always watched what he said. You can go and listen to some interviews, especially ones where he um, was on the phone. There's a really interesting one with Jack Kirby calling in and Stan being on the phone, kind of surprised uh, Jack with having Stan there. And they communicated, and you can tell that Jack was definitely a bit more standoffish and not in a position to really speak his truth, but you can tell he was holding back. And, and it's that type of thing where it's like on another end, having someone be, let's say, the hype man or, or the, uh, the, final, you know, the, the final person to, to, to add those bits of excitement in the writing that actually made it good, regardless of what we can attribute Stan to do, knowing that Jack was largely... Uh, I would imagine an introverted person, you know, someone who, who sits in the, in the dungeon for 12, 18 hours a day. Like this is someone who doesn't have the same type of people skills at the very least that we can say as Stan Lee and that timid nature typically in a professional work environment prevents people from achieving some of the recognition that others do. doesn't make it right though. And it's that frustrating feeling that you get that I want to like circle back to what modern comics are experiencing right now. I can compare this with uh, this wave of AI art that has infiltrated the comic variant market. Talk about it in length with people. I can also compare it to this wave of just digital art that kind of just appeared and became a mainstay. Yo, someone paid money for a Gabriel Del Auto piece that took them over four days of paint and and, and redoing and, and, and uh, practice in 20 years of like, you know, being a freaking perfectionist and a master of the craft that is uh, of that, that, that causes other artists we respect to awe whenever he hits that, that page, just like a Megmaniola at a, at a class session when he's teaching people how to do negative space versus an artist who just does the line work in digital and then pays an inker and pays a colorist. And then both variants are worth the same amount. Like these are things that I think about and I, I think I want to bring this back to the table to discuss more in length because these are great conversations because long term, I think a big part of this industry is about telling the story about how these things get created. You know, a movie, to your point, is only as successful as the marketing. And when that movie does an amazing job because they fired on all cylinders. It wasn't just the acting, but it was also because, hey, they made a really great trailer. Well, now you have success. When you talk about movies too, though, like most creative artistic efforts are group efforts or team-based things. So it's a, it's an easier narrative to kind of pin it all on one person, like to say Stan Lee is Fantastic Four or to say like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, for example. You know, you, you got a movie and you got one guy in charge who who's in charge of like creative visioning the whole thing. But then you've also got to consider all of the individual actors' performances, and you got to consider the guy who holds the mic over th over overhead, and the guy who wrote the screenplay, and the sound mixing, and all, all the little tiny bits that go in there. Or think about every band you've ever liked, you know, and how most people can name the lead singer of every band, but who knows every drummer and every bassist of every band who are just as important to the overall sound, but don't necessarily get the same amount of love because they're not the hype man at front. Inkers, pencilers, writers, editors, cover artists. The person who does the word balloons, you know, like all together, these things combine and they're just narratives. These these individuals who are professionals at their ta at their craft, their stories aren't being told enough. And it makes sense why they're not being told enough, because, hey, you have to, like, put yourself out there. And this is a medium where largely if you do it well, you don't actually have to. But 
I think now is the time that we need to start recognizing these individuals because that's what's going to prevent there being another Kirby long term. And just really quick, just to follow up here, we got to look back at the history of comics. I mean, they've been around for let's almost say 80 years plus. And so a lot of memories of who did what is also can be lost in time. But the value of comics weren't what we think they are now. Okay. They were just throwaways. The The importance of Captain America to us now is huge, but back then it just wasn't. So the understanding of copyright and ownership, there was a lot of naivete at that time. It just wasn't what we th- what they thought, what it is now. People are so much smarter. Artists get it. They need to own the IP. They didn't then, so the companies took it over, and it's just kind of, unfortunately, the people that we love the most that we've lost in time got cheated. And you'll see that same thing with athletes who started these sports. I mean, how much did they really get paid to now the hundred million dollar contracts you're seeing with basketball players and all kinds of athletes. Um, They started it. They will always be legendary. And these families do, I feel are owed more than what they get. So hopefully with conversations like this, Um, It'll bring more attention and awareness. So let's raise everybody. Let's not knock people down to get to to a lower bar. I want to see a Jack Kirby documentary. Damn it. And Stanley's dead. He didn't even do this documentary. So let's let's like not blame him also for doing something and putting something out and okaying this. Let us know what you think about this topic in the comment section below. And while you're at it, we may feature your comment if you let me know what you think about digital art. What do you think about artists who... Um, also break up the workload to another inker or another colorist. Um, we got to do a whole show on that at some point. And yeah, I'm sure if you leave some kind of interesting comment down below, we will definitely scoop it up and throw it on screen and discuss at a future date. So I got this homie named Matt DeMasi. You know him as Shattered Comics over on Instagram. This is a very incredibly talented artist. He does these giant mosaics. They go for like freaking five to 15 plus thousand dollars. He sold his mosaic of uh, first Iron Man and Toss for uh, to Robert Downey Jr., you know? So it's, it's a pretty cool thing. And he's also a collector. He, he, he hunts aggressively. And he showed me a purchase that I wanted to bring to you guys because I thought it fascinating. He doesn't just buy comics. Like, and that's how the comic collecting hobby goes, you know? Like when you're going about, you're buying collections, you kind of got to get well-versed in a lot of little stuff, you know? You're going to buy cards sometimes. Sometimes you're going to get hit with magazines. Sometimes video games. Like I got well-versed in video games mostly because I would buy a collection and then they'll say, hey, you interested in NES stuff? And, you know, I wasn't like trying to buy NES stuff, but that's in the box and I want it, you know? So Matt DeMossi, he does some of this stuff too. And he bought a binder of marketing ads from a owner who worked at this shop. And it was like a family member of the person. So this is a binder from a store that he had filled with just old pictures, okay? He said he spent like three grand on a bunch of stuff. So I don't know if this was added into it. I doubt he paid three grand for just this binder. Maybe he'll follow up, shout out. Um, But I want to show you some of these pictures because this is from a grocery store way back in the day. Now, the reason why I know that this is way back in the day, I'm going to take it to like around the year. And I'm going to show you why I know the year here in a second. We're talking in the 30s, okay? So um, this right here is um, on the screen. Can you describe what you're seeing for our audio listeners? It looks, from this angle, an interior of a grocery store. And I don't know if Equipto is the (laughs) robot security guard from the future that's protecting it. I think it's the name of the store. (laughs) Maybe the name of the store. It looks like the name of the supplier who 
supplies shelves. It looks like a catalog for shelving in grocery stores. Wait, so, wait, wait, wait. What's on the shelves? So yeah. now I'm looking at a picture because this is filled with pictures of this store from way back when, okay? And this is something he acquired. He has these pictures, and I don't believe they're ever been seen on the internet. So hit the subscribe button. We're bringing you some cool stuff here today. But what we're looking at now is like a big old magazine rack. And you can see a lot of different magazines. You can zoom in on this, day. right? Yeah, there sure. You go. know, Esquire's on there. Um, wow. It looks like some... Uh, this is a real newsstand. Yeah, it's like an like uh, OG oh, real newsstand. I see a right? Jumbo Comics. Now, what's really cool about this is I'm going to show you this picture. This is, the, this is a shot of the entire store here. Um, so you can see like... Yeah, they have a lot of stuff around in fixtures, but also a, st- a lot of stuff on the counters back I in the see day. see a Nestle jars. bar down in the bottom right. Say that again? Nestle bar down in the bottom right. Yes. Yeah, candy. Is a, yeah, candy stuff. Of course, um, I spot the candy. <laughs> yeah, Ryan loves candy, but, you know, we're a comic book podcast. I want to show you this. This picture right here may be the only picture that exists of Detective Comics 27. Oh! Three copies. On freaking rack. Oh, dude! What is that? Okay, so that's an All American Comics. That's gonna predate though the first uh, Green Lantern, but that Jumbo Comics. Can you see what issue number that is? Jack Kirby's first work, I believe, was in a Jumbo Comics. I mean, first published comic work. Star Comics is a tough publication. Fritzy Ritz, or Fritz, Fritzy. Oh, funnies. Oh man. So cool. That is so freaking cool. What's next to the detective? Man, you got me geeking out here. I yeah. love seeing these types of photos. So how cool is this? Because I don't think I've ever seen a Detective 27, first appearance of Batman, on a stand. Just sitting and there. And Matt DeMossi wow. got a collection filled with a bunch of pictures. And there was, like, no hesitancy to buy this probably when he saw this one photograph. Has this ever been documented? I don't know. But I have to assume there's not very many pictures from on-stand sales of the first appearance of Batman. And also, look how freaking nice those books look. That's crazy. You don't even know who they, Batman they, is yet at that point. It's they, just another comic. They look shiny and fresh like they just got printed. That's crazy. The Yo, comic fam on audio, um, you gotta, Ryan has got a freaking grin on. Jeff is like in, he's, got, he's lost in bewilderment right now. Yeah, for this one section at least, you got to pull up on YouTube if you're listening to this. Dude, can you zoom in even more? I need to see these books. I mean, this is this is uh, that one. Uh, just enhanced like they do on CSI. Bring his face up, full screen. His glasses. There's a reflection. Enhancing on in, in, for a photo taken in the 30s means zooming um, or pulling your face closer to the screen. No, but this is like extremely high resolution photo. Yeah. Like to be zooming in this much to get the details. Talk in the mic, Jeff. I can't, man. I'm too busy trying to put my face in the screen. That's so cool, man. What are you thinking about right now? I'm thinking, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm thinking I want a time machine. I want a time machine. I want to find this place. I want a Hershey bar. Books. He just wants to go back for the Hershey bar. Well, that too. I'll <laughs> grab that on the way out. But <laughs> On the way out. I love it. This is so cool, man. This is. I got to look up all these comics too now. I got to know what issue numbers they are. Hit what the else? like, slap the subscribe. We are going to have to come back to the mic with more info now that the Golden Age Guru has seen it. We haven't told him what year this is because this is Detective Comics 27. So do you know what year it came out? 1927. Yeah. 1929,000. 1938. Close. 1939. There you go. Oh, what a good guess. You got on your first try. I said 1938 first because it just felt right. That's Action 1. Action 1 is 38. That's what I was thinking of. That's right. A39 Superman 1 came out too, so it could be 
coming up. It could be one of those. Who knows? Let us know what you think about this in the comment section below. And thank you so much for watching. That's Bags and Boards podcast number 75. And as always, geek responsibly. Nuff.